Hey folks, Jared here, host of Concessions. Well, first off, thank you so much for loading up this first episode of our podcast. Uh, Dan and I have been working really hard, recording a backlog of episodes that we're going to start rolling out for you. But before the episode begins, I want to give you a little bit of background. So Dan and I met each other back in 2020 when he was hired at a company I'd been working for for quite some time at that time. The pandemic was well underway. And so the first several months that we knew each other, Dan was just kind of a talking head on on Zoom calls here and there. And then once COVID restrictions started to relax a little bit, I started to travel more for work and I went to a company retreat, met Dan in person for the first time at a team dinner. And it was just like friendship at first sight. Like he and I just were those people that just obnoxiously dominated the conversation. Like it was just the two of us in the room there at dinner, just opining about movies for like hours like what we'd seen recently and what we were going to see. And those conversations basically just never ceased ever since over the last like two and a half years. So um, it became really apparent during the last couple of years as well that our our backgrounds and our upbringings and our our education levels and that sort of thing are are, are really very different. And, And so our perspectives on cinema are often really at odds with each other. Some of his favorite movies are my least favorite, uh, some of my favorite movies are his least favorite. Um, yet we, we've managed to always maintain this this air of cordiality when we debate. So we thought it would be fun to watch movies that I love and that he doesn't, or movies that he loves and that I don't, and then share our thoughts and opinions with each other until one of us concedes the point to the other. Hence, concessions. <laughs> and we uh, we enjoyed the play on words there uh, enough to start a podcast. So now. Sometimes we are very much in agreement with each other, which uh, you'll discover shortly here. Uh, So we will be dropping episodes weekly on Monday. Every Monday, rain or shine, concessions will be here. Uh, Some of these episodes, you know, we're we're both going to gush over a film and some episodes we're going to have no choice but to shit all over a film. and, And that's okay, too. But uh, once a month, we'll follow our original concessions format where we duke it out with our opposing perspectives on some of our favorites and try to sway the other's opinion. Um, so, so as we've been putting in the work, recording episodes and you know, getting a little bit better at it each time, we've, we've sort of agonized over when to start publishing. And, and then this past week, the, the world of cinema made it really easy for us to decide to start publishing is we're currently living through just an, an undeniable moment of cultural impact with people returning to the cinema en masse to see Barbie and Oppenheimer. So we decided we simply had to begin our foray into this podcasting world by dropping dueling Barbenheimer episodes. So once again, you know, th- thanks for giving us a spin, for giving us a shot. And I hope you enjoy part one of the debut of Concessions, where we break down the Barbenheimer phenomenon and do a deep dive into Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Welcome to Concessions. I am Dan. And I'm Jared. And someone set us up the bomb. (laughs) 
Welcome to our inaugural episode here, uh, what we like to do here at Concessions to kick things off a little bit on a little personal note to let you, let you get to know the, the men behind the mics. Jared, what you been up to this week? What you, what you sipping on over there? Has there been anything that you have uh, consumed in any way, shape, or form that has made you glad? Yeah, well, let's break this down. So let's start with what I'm drinking here. And what I'm drinking here is a Winemakers Selection Reserve Series 2020 French Rosé. Uh, it's got a it's got a twist cap, and it was ten dollars at Walmart for the for the kids at home. Uh, what color is rosé? Uh, just I don't remember. Why this one is mostly transparent, but uh, it's supposed to be pink. Oh, pink, pink, very interesting. Um, but. <laughs> So anything, uh, anything you've been reading, watching, playing, uh, anything of that sort that also has been making you glad in the last week? Yeah, well, you know, so just, you know, obviously you you decided to listen to this. So, you know, this is our Bar- Barbenheimer episode. And usually we have these conversations of like, hey, we've got our like our main thing that we're going to be talking about today. But, you know, what are the uh, what are the supplementary items? Like, what else did you consume this past week other than the movie that we're going to talk about? And I got to say, this past week, I've been firmly in Barbenheimer land, um, <laughs> truly. Like, I've seen each film twice now. And uh, I read uh, or just inhaled, absolutely inhaled the the book on which Barben- or Oppenheimer is based. <laughs> Barbenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read, yeah, I read the Barbie and Oppenheimer biography. No, I read the American. I uh, I read American Prometheus, uh, which is a, just an exhaustive biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer. You know, on which the film is based. Uh, Christopher Nolan based his screenplay on this book in particular, and uh, it, it is a long read, but it is it leaves no stone unturned as far as you know interviewing all of the people that were closest to Oppenheimer. It uh, the the biographer started doing his research and conducting his interviews back in 1979. He sort of lost the plot somewhere along the way and brought on a second biographer uh, to come in and help him finish the book. And it was finally published in 2005. Wow. So, yeah. So the book was, you know, it was really, it started, you know, being written when many or, you know, most of the, the major figures around, Oppenheimer were still alive and able to be interviewed, but with the kind of the younger, um, kind of more finger on the pulse type of biographer, got his hands on it and really polished it up and finished it, you know, in 2005, like as a result, it it has this kind of like intense thrillery kind of page turnery quality to it. So it's, it's this great combination of extremely, uh, you know, well-researched, but also just fun to read. It's a thriller, uh, which, you know, it comes across in the movie, certainly, too. Huh. I actually, I mean, I'm not surprised that there's, like, a definitive text on uh, Oppenheimer, but I didn't realize that no one had uh, had based it closely on that. I think I was reading somewhere that the, the, the screenplay is written in first person or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get all yeah, we'll get that, you know, when we, when we dive deep on Oppenheimer, and the answer to that is mostly yes. Huh. Weird. Uh, what did you watch, Reed? Or actually, no, no, no. Screw what you what you consumed. 
in a more metaphorical sense, what are you actually consuming into your body at this moment? I've got uh, a Societe uh, Brewing Company, highly skilled West Coast IPA with uh, hints of citrus, melon, and most importantly, grooves. Uh, it's on the grooves. can. Cans legally cannot lie in the state of California, so there are grooves in here. I can confirm. Uh, but what's most important is a pretty pink, like 70s inspired uh, looking can. They've got roller oh, skates boy. on it. That's important. Um, no, roller blades. Ro well, oh, roller blades. Sorry. Yeah, there is a difference. I apologize to the roller skating community. Um, these are blades on the can. Uh, but yeah, it's just kind of like a, your standard fruity IPA. Saw it at the local Trader Joe's and uh, the, the can. Actually, I can't take credit for it. My girlfriend thought it looked good. So uh, good on her for scouting that one out. Um, but no, pretty tasty. Uh, but when it comes to uh, the consuming of the soul and not so much the body, uh, and boy, was this a, uh, a treat for the soul was for the first I've finally these are the uh, the beginning of a trilogy that I've been wanting to watch. I have been like, I want to like give it the time of day, no pun intended. Uh, and for some reason, finally got around to it was Before Sunrise uh, by Richard Linklater. And oh my, is a, is a reason why this thing is hyped up as like one of, you know, one of the best like dialogue movies, one of the most romantic movies, one of the most like just rip your soul in two and give you a big old hug movies. Great stuff. Um, as someone that probably, it's almost good. I've watched it now out of my 20s instead of in my early 20s because that might have been uh similar to other characters we're going to talk about later today that would have been a personality i might have accidentally downloaded if i saw ethan hawk when i was like <laughs> 21 uh you know uh those are major gaps in in my film watching life i have not seen any of them did you not just immediately go into before sunset or are you kind of letting yourself digest a little bit longer than that well, the problem I would have, uh, but there's nowhere that's streaming for free. So it kind of was like, now oh. that it's in. And actually, I want to wait, watch it with my 10 years. <laughs> yeah, give it about, give it the appropriate 10 years the way it was meant to be watched. Give it a uh, decade, then watch it. <laughs> or you're not doing it right. You haven't really seen Before Sunset if you watch it, you know, less than nine years after watching Before Sunrise. <laughs> that's like I'm still in the middle of watching Boyhood. I'm letting it take 18 years to watch Boyhood. Yeah. Uh, very excited to see how that ends because you're currently only 16. You started it when you were five, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, but yeah, actually, I, I want to re watch the first one with my girlfriend so that we can watch the next two together because I'm just a big old sweetie, you know. Uh, uh, well, I hope yeah, that's we, good, those are good date movies. Oh, for sure. Um, but we have a big week for, for people who like movies, for like going out to uh, movies, for like talking about movies, yeah, uh, that are you know, looking for something fresh and new and just like, you know, big monocultural events, which don't really happen much anymore. Uh, the old Barbenheimer craze. We are on the other side of that as of recording uh, both Oppenheimer or Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer and Greta Gerwig's Barbie came out now exactly a week ago. Um, and it did not, I mean, long story short, did not disappoint. Both are killing it at the box office. Rave reviews. Uh, Jared, you want to run us through a few numbers on where we are a week into both of these movies coming out? Yeah, absolutely. And you've hit the nail on the head. This is a monoculture event. Like this is a, a bona fide cultural phenomenon that we are uh, living through that doesn't happen cinematically too often anymore, particularly when it doesn't involve, you know, spandex or space wizards 
or, you know, those, those things that, that we love, but um, yeah, just the fact that we've got two movies by really well-respected, you know, serious auteurs at the, the height of their powers that couldn't be any more different from each other beyond just, you know, the fact that they're extraordinary films, both um, really captured the zeitgeist this weekend. And it's in a way that I haven't seen since, you know, before, before COVID began. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. So, um, so first of all, this was the largest like overall box office weekend since 2019 when Avengers Endgame came out. And if you just look at the all time list of the all time biggest box office weekends, you know, in their totality, this is fourth only to that weekend when Endgame came out. Uh, you know, some months before that when Infinity War came out, and then uh, a few years before that when Star Wars The Force Awakens came out. So Barbenheimer collectively is, you know, about as big as one of those movies, which, you know, kind of doesn't sound super impressive when you're talking about like two movies combined being as big as one other movie. But when the movie you're talking about is Avengers Endgame, um, that, that is quite the feat. So um, Barbie... Broke the uh, the 2023 uh, opening box office weekend record. Took it from Mario. Uh, asterisk there, though. Mario did open on a Wednesday. So the first uh, weekend that Mario was out uh, where it was actually the, the third, fourth, and fifth day that it was out, not the first, second, and third. So uh, the, the, you kind of argue which one is kind of the, the bigger weekend. Um, but uh, this is by far the all-time opening weekend or record holder now for a movie directed by a woman. Uh, Greta Gerwig must be feeling pretty pretty damn good right now. Uh, on the other side, on the Oppenheimer side, this is the biggest opening for an R-rated movie since uh, the pandemic began. And this is a pretty interesting one. This is probably my favorite. And it kind of just goes back to this being an overall huge weekend. But Barbenheimer, I'm going to call Oppenheimer, <laughs> Barbenheimer repeatedly throughout but Oppenheimer is the biggest opening ever for a movie that opened against another movie that made a hundred million dollars or more. So if you take the entire history of the box office, whenever you have a huge, you know, blockbuster movie that opens up at hundred million plus, uh, Oppenheimer is the biggest ever number two uh, at eighty million dollars. So basically, uh, but... you're saying there was something that drew so much. Like usually, when a movie that big lands, it draws attention away to that. So if you're like the the, the you know the the counter programming to it, you're going to expect to have pretty humble numbers. But somehow, yeah. it's both and not either or. Yeah, yeah. People exactly. So people throw the word like counter programming around all the time to just say you know something different than the big movie that came out. This is was like a just a perfect storm, like a symbiotic, like true counter programming where both of these movies brought other people to, to see, you know, the, the other film uh, in droves and worked both ways. Apparently um, I suspected it was, it was more folks who were going to see Barbie anyway. They're like, Oh, I might as well see Oppenheimer and get caught up in the meme, but we'll see. Um, uh, both movies have an a cinema score. Um, which is uh, for those who don't know, CinemaScore uh, is a format that assigns a letter grade to folks who saw the movie on opening day. It's an exit poll as they're leaving the theater. For people that actually saw the movie, what grade would you give it? You know, just like a school grade. And uh, A plus is the highest. Both Barbie and Oppenheimer got an A, so almost the highest. Um, so even if if folks did 
you know, intend to go see Barbie. It was sold out. So they saw Oppenheimer instead. They still loved Oppenheimer um, because it's, it's just a very good movie. Um, you know, so there's, there are many, many more other international records. Like Barbie was the biggest 2023 opening in a lot of the countries it debuted in. Um, but yeah, overall, it's just uh, amazing to see, um, especially in a, a summer or a year that's just seen like huge bloated budget movies just absolutely bomb like the flash uh, just the fact that like barbie's already made way more money than the flash um is is just mind-blowing to me and i never would have thought that you know a couple months ago um so I'm, I'm excited that these movies are are just cleaning up and they're not you know the the 20th movie in a superhero franchise because <laughs> i love those franchise superhero movies myself yeah um yeah, what, what what you were saying about like the the scores being the same, where you could see like on paper, like even just look at the the, the trailers for both, it looks like they couldn't be any or any more different, and yet they're kind of getting a both and where it's it's covering uh, somehow like the or the same people are going into both of them and loving them both. Like I actually I don't know anyone really personally that was like, oh, I really loved this one, but this one I didn't like at all. Usually it's like I love both and I prefer one a little bit more. Um, but it's interesting to actually it's kind of interesting that you're saying how internationally they're kind of doing the same because these are both really, really, really American movies um, focusing on. Or, and I guess we're, we're kind of transitioning into how are these movies similar movie or these two movies, at least on their surface, could not look more different. Um, but they kind of have a lot of like there are some bones that they share that I think is really helping them out as a sort of quote unquote. I wouldn't even call them counter programming. It's almost like supplemental programming. Um, because especially the first one that, uh, so I, I did the, the Barbenheimer circuit. I went Barbie first and then I saw Oppenheimer. Um, and that was kind of the first thing that really jumped out to me is like, these are two like pivotal, I would say 20th century American figures that have really, uh, kind of defined our understanding of, uh, a history in the case of Oppenheimer, I guess you could kind of, you could say that in the case of Barbie, but more so Oppenheimer or culture or uh, identity in general, which would be more on the side of Barbie. But then if you think of like culture and identity and just our understanding of World War II and our story behind that in the, the telling of Oppenheimer, um, they're both like really uh, dealing with, and they're both fully understanding them as symbols. Barbie, I think is very explicit about it. It's like, it's, it's directly in the script. It's talked about right then there, but uh, Oppenheimer in a more subtle way is looking at like Oppenheimer as a myth, and and the tension between him as a myth and him is just like literally J R Oppenheimer the guy. Um, where like did you pick up on that? Were there other things you were seeing in there as well? Where it's like oh these movies are sort of quote unquote talking to each other. Yeah, I mean they both concern American figures that people point directly at as both hugely influential and also thoroughly harmful in other ways. Um, and uh, you know th neither movie shies away from that which is really, really uh, great to see, particularly in the case of Barbie. Like with, with Oppenheimer, it's, you know, this is a serious drama. The man's been dead for 50 or 60 years. Um, he, like we, it's the destructive nature of the atomic bomb is clear to everybody. And, um, you know, that kind of push and pull of his influence versus harm is sort of central to 
anyone's understanding of Oppenheimer, right? With Barbie, it's more impressive because like this is a movie where the Mattel brand is literally in the, you know, in the the opening titles. Like this is a movie that's produced by Mattel with their flagship IP. Uh, this is the first time they've attempted a, a big budget live action Barbie movie. And for it to be this subversive and, and actually taking time to ponder over the harm that Bar- Barbie has caused uh, is pretty damn impressive. Like it really, it's almost directly in conversation with each other, almost like as if, you know, some of that from Oppenheimer rubbed off. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I would like off. to see the <laughs> beached off. <laughs> um, I would, I would be fascinated to see like a timeline of the production process for both of these movies. Um, yeah. And seeing if there is any sort of symbiosis between the two, or if they're kind of yeah. looking at each other. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is just coincidence. Um, it's got to be coincidence. I, I'm, I'm definitely not trying to say that it isn't. It's just, it is fascinating though that you, you do have these two just very iconic mid 20th century, um, just yeah, symbols of of this. Um, this dichotomy, right? Um, I mean, I would say both might have a little bit of a underlying thesis of uh, men tend to fuck shit up when given <laughs> too much power. Um, but we'll but get like, all the way into that. I guess uh, to what you're saying, like it's sort of in, in what I was talking about how it's coincidence because, like, I it's it's interesting because, like, you know, in this cultural moment, like there, there's a lot of like looking back at American symbols and and uh, just assumed things about culture and trying to redefine them as you know every generation every time period does with previous moments in history and like i feel like these both are looking at a sim like from 2020 you know, probably may this is probably may these were probably thought about in like 2020 2021 whatever um and looking at the middle of the, the the 20th century which like you could say a lot of people especially more like people with more traditional values would say that's like the golden era of the, the US where it's like that's like classic Americana it's uh World War II and right after in the 50s white picket fence all that stuff so it's like a of reappraisal not even a reappraisal but like a reevaluation of what that means to us now about 70 to 80 years later and I think both of them they avoid two pitfalls uh that would have made either one of them kind of weak which is you know just nostalgia you know just kind of wallowing and like oh those were the good old days and then the other side of the coin where it's just like, tear it all down, leave it back there. We don't need it. Like, fuck these guys. Oh, well, we're swearing now. Fuck these guys. Um, we're we're moving on because we're the, it's 2023 now. We don't need it. Um, and I think it, it, the both of them pretty uh, delicately uh, kind of weigh the good and the bad and try and bring them up to today to try and use them as like productive symbols for today. Um, and I think what's interesting, it's kind of, they both go almost in different directions in this, um, which I thought was really interesting where it's like Oppenheimer as a symbol or as, you know, like this thing that we learn in school or this, this figure in American history, I think Nolan was doing a good job of deconstructing, like of trying to drop him down to the level of a man or at least complicating him and, and like 
taking him out of this like messianic, like great man theory of history uh, sort of symbol and like showing him as this like murky, conflicted, you know, very imperfect man like anyone else is. Whereas with Barbie, it seems to not like Gerwig seemed to want to keep Barbie as like this mythic figure, eh, in a sense, a mythic figure because Barbie's not real. Obviously, that's the big advantage. Well, it's different. She's, she's becoming real throughout the movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's it's to redefine to to like to not like completely drop her and leave her back. Like, you know, like this, we, and we'll get into it when we go to each movie individually, where you're hearing like the teenage girls from the junior high that just want to like, you know, essentially destroy her in the trash and leave her in the dustbin of history. Um, but to, to take what was always good about the figure of Barbie and like kind of mold her into our modern sensibilities today without like breaking the symbol that, while keeping it, uh, as still a, a, a cogent symbol that we can still understand that, that someone from the fifties or when Barbie first came out would still understand of, Oh, that's what Barbie is. Yeah. Well, and I think she had to do that. Right. I mean, you know, obviously when, when she got this job of directing this writing and directing this movie, like she, she in theory was still, um, you know, kind of under certain parameters from Mattel to, you know, safeguard the brand in certain ways, I would suspect. I, I, I'm sure we can learn how, just to what extent that was, or or maybe we will in the future. Um, but I do think that like what you're describing may be a result of, you know, an artist given certain limitations and, and just how fruitful it can be mm-hmm. to work within certain limitations like that. Um, it is a pretty damn impressive just piece of pop art in like the, the sense of the word where it is art, but it is still, you know, capitalism manifest <laughs> where, yeah. And I mean, you know, it's a cliche thing to say where it's like, it's like a really, really, really good, well thought out and excellently crafted pop song where it's like, not all pop <laughs> is just, you know, uh, disposable sh- bubblegum pop. Some of it's like, you know, excellent as much as some of the best high art. Yeah. Yeah, this, um, this is one of the greatest commercials of all time. <laughs> For real. And yeah, I would be excited to see, like, if if there ever is, like, a director's commentary or behind-the-scenes thing, like, just to see what limitations were placed on her. Because we're seeing that now with, like, you know, the glut of IP-driven stuff where you're hearing after a movie bombs or something, you're learning that, like, a director was so limited or, you know, a visionary director gets brought on to a massive IP-driven um story and then like they just get lost in it and you don't even see the director's vision yeah. anymore um and and honestly and we can get into it when we start talking about barbies particularly that's what i thought was going to happen and my god it, i mean it's a miracle gerwig pulled no, off no this um, still is fits very well thematically into her filmography oh, and yeah. you know what no further ado let's get to it <laughs> barbie time we are we are bringing the Kennergy. We are going to Barbie land. We're going to beat each other off for a good 30, 40 minutes. Oh, I will beat you off. Will you <laughs> beat me off? Will I beat you off? I mean, I live in California. I've, I've beached off so much this week already. I might be a little sore if we can just kind of let's ease into it, if you don't mind. Um, so you, you, just... Yvonne, you ease into it. I'm going to furiously beach off. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, you're up in a, in colder climate. So, you know, you have less opportunities to beach off. Just not really. 
good. We're, we're wearing out the joke. Anyways, um, so Barbie is a uh, film uh, made in tw- or released in 2023 by director and or director Greta Gerwig, writer Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, um, who are uh, a married couple writing this as well. Uh, it stars a whole host of people, but unfortunately, it's very easy for me because there's not a lot of different character names. Uh, you got Margot Robbie as the main Barbie. You got Ryan Gosling as the main Ken. And then you have a mother-daughter combo of America Ferreira and uh, Ariana Greenblatt. And then you've got uh, Kate McKinnon playing Barbie. You've got Issa Rae playing Barbie. You've got Alexandra Shipp playing Barbie. Uh, you've got Emma Mackey playing Barbie. A whole lot of other Barbies. And you have a bunch of other Kens uh, played by people such as Kingsley Benadir. You've got Simo Liu. Uh, you've got, uh, oh, we've got so many other ones. Um, actually, they're just Ken's. Who cares, really? Um, but then you've got Michael Sarah playing the incomparable Alan. Uh, you got Will Ferrell showing up as a Mattel CEO. I feel like those are the big ones or the main characters. Am I missing any uh, pivotal figures, at least? Um, we've, got, we've got Hari Neff as uh, the Dr. Barbie. Mm-hmm. Certainly will will come into play as we're talking about some uh, reactions to reactions a little bit later. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. Yeah, that is that is relevant for later. But anyway, so that's uh, that's the basic bones of this movie. And um, I'll, I'll start with my um, relationship or relationship with my relationship with Greta Gerwig. I'm going to spill the truth. Um, Ooh, let's get that hot tea. <laughs> <laughs> now, but Credit Gerwig's always been, uh, I think I first saw her in Francis Ha because my roommate uh, at the time was very much a uh, an aspiring artist. So like Francis Ha was naturally going to be a movie that he loved and showed me. And honestly, I was like, eh, I mean, it's okay. I kind of left it where it was. But then I think very quickly back to back, I saw Lady Bird and um, Little Women. And, and then I was fully on board with Credit Gerwig and everything she was doing. Um, so I've loved those two films. And honestly, when I heard that, A, when I heard there was a Barbie movie, my first reaction was I roll another IP driven, uh, you know, big corporate movie. Like how many of these do we need? And then I heard Greta Gerwig was doing it. And I at least was like raising an eyebrow like, oh, OK, this has something going on. I saw the cast. I was like, OK, this might be fun. Could be a good time. And then, oh, my God, the marketing for this was incredible i was fully on the barbie hype train uh then fully on the barbenheimer hype train i would say at least like i don't know about you but when i first heard the two were going to be originally released i was probably more excited about oppenheimer uh at initially but i would say by the time it came up to the week of i was more excited for barbie given everything that i had like that was just sensing from the film um but yeah, that's, uh, and then, you know, just the brand of Barbie. I mean, I grew up with four sisters. There was always a ton of uh, weird Barbies in my basement that were in all sorts of uh, senses of disarray. There was never a Barbie fully clothed. There was at least a dozen naked Barbies with burnt off hair and who knows what getting thrown all over the place. Um, so I was I was familiar with the brand. It wasn't like... Like the the like the deep cuts they did in the movie, I didn't like immediately recognize them. I was glad that they were kind of holding your hand through some of that and making good jokes in the process. Um, but uh, yeah, that's basically uh, that's basically my going into the movie. That that was basically my attitude and the context I had walking in. What about you, Jared? Uh, 
pretty much exactly the same. Like, I don't need to you know, just repeat everything you said. But my first memory of Greta Gerwig is different. It was uh, the movie The House of the Devil, the, uh, oh. the first first major feature from Ty West. Um, really, really good 70s throwback. Like, he has done several times where he's like, makes the movie purposefully trying to actually make it appear to have been produced in the seventies. He did it with X. He did it a little bit with, uh, in a Valley of violence and he really committed to it hard in house of the devil. But, you know, I knew her as just part of that whole crew with like Joe Swanberg and Noah Baumbach and Ty West and, uh, some of the other kind of horror adjacent guys that are all part of that sort of second wave of mumblecore thing that happened in like the, the aughts. Um, and yeah, I mean, Francis Ha definitely fell in love with that movie. It's amazing to go back and watch that movie now. It's kind of one of those kind of benchmarks where it's like you go back and it's like, oh yeah, look at all these people who are like gigantic superstars now yeah. who were nobody when they made that movie. But yeah, she's come a long way from uh, from popping pop a squat and peeing in the subway in Francis Ha um, to now making Barbie and being uh, the the most financially successful uh, female movie director of all time and one of the most respected as well. Um, <laughs> uh, or just, you know, one of the most respected of all filmmakers at the moment, not, not but, but financially, you know, I don't want to get too much into that. Um, but yeah, uh, kind of the lead up to Barbenheimer, uh, definitely was also more, um, excited for, for Oppenheimer, um, at first, even though Christopher Nolan by and large has been, had been a little hit or miss for me. I do remember like, you know, not to be too much of a hipster, but I do remember uh, seeing the release date for Barbie and being like, that's Christopher Nolan's uh, weekend. <laughs> like this is that, no, that's the weekend. He always releases his movies. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, um, yeah. And I know this well because it's my birthday. And uh, so every two to three years, basically like for the whole, the whole like second half of my life so, to this point, Christopher Nolan has given me a, a lovely birthday gift, like every two to three years. Uh, sometimes I don't care for those gifts. Uh, sometimes I do, but um, it always it's so seems thoughtful to that be... he thought of you. You know, yeah, like his uh, uh, Christopher Nolan movie releasing is emblematic of my birthday. So, like, I've got this positive context to it, and um, yeah, I was excited for Oppenheimer, and then uh, yeah, I remember like early, early on, like over a year ago. Uh, when I first heard that about Barbie coming out that week, and my first thought was like, "Oh shit, do they know what they're doing?" Uh, because that's not good for Barbie. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> but I think Barbie helped out Oppenheimer. Uh, absolutely, that's the way. That's the way it's shaken out. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, yeah. As far as my relationship with Barbie, you know. It's part of everyone's life, you know, who's grown up post sixties. So uh, I don't, I don't have any sisters, but uh, certainly female cousins and um, you know, uh, childhood friends. Wait, you're the cousin of a female cousin? <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm the yeah, oh yeah. I'm the I'm the 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 miho of a of a female tia, um, <laughs> but. Yeah, I definitely, there were Barbie dolls around. I don't remember exactly whose they were, but I do remember being that shitty little boy that would like love disfiguring them. <laughs> like, so definitely some weird Barbies around as well. Um, while we're on the topic of weird Barbie, um, 
did you ever watch the Rugrats growing up? Oh, uh, Cynthia. Cynthia. Yeah. She, <laughs> I feel like Kate McKinnon is uh, maybe more than a little bit inspired by specifically by Cynthia. Wow. I didn't think about that. Yeah. She was channeling some good uh, Cynthia where actually I was, I was saying that uh, a few days ago. It's like Kate McKinnon chosen as a weird Barbie was so, so perfect. Cause it's like, she does like, she's like 98% of the way there for being like perfect stereotypical Barbie, but she's got like this mm-hmm. bit of an unusual look about her. Oh yeah, I think Kate McKinnon is absolutely stunning, and so, so, uh, you know, obviously so funny, and that makes her even even more gorgeous, and oh, yeah. uh, very unattainable, given that I'm a man, and <laughs> not, not, I even and if even if I was a woman, I still wouldn't be in her league. So I mean, you can't even do the splits, so that's gonna make that. Tough. Now she can do the splits enough for both of us, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so now that you know, we, we you've seen Barbie a couple of times now. What are your overall impressions? Like, what are what are the big what are the big likes? I mean, the the, the funny thing is with a movie that's so like uh, fairy fairy tale. I don't know if that's the right word, but fantastical. Like, it was so tactile. Like, there mm-hmm. everything was physically made. The sets were clearly built out. Like, I mean, the only the only uh, CGI that you really clearly noticed were like clearly. Um, like animated or like kind of zhuzhed up and clearly made to, it wasn't trying to look real. And like, there was just, um, it was so obvious, like the level of craft and everything down from the costuming to, I mean, yeah, I could go on and on about the production design. Um, I forget what, um, I was watching an interview with Greta Gerwig and it's like just that little gag with Gosling with, um, two pairs of sunglasses. I think it was ripped from umbrellas of Cherbourg, but I, I probably not. So whoever wants to correct me, please do. But it was another film where it's like, it was just like an entire film. It was like, they use the influence for one quick gag and it just kind of, it, it's a microcosm to show you just like how much care went into this. Yeah. Um, and, and like, like the color palette, the way that like they used pink in so many different ways. To oh set, yeah, layers so many of different, different hues of pink. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, before I've, we get too fur- before we get too further away from that comment you made, hmm. though, uh, uh, anyone who hasn't seen it should definitely search YouTube for the the letterboxed interview oh, it's with amazing, Greta, yeah. with Greta Gerwig, where she's just listing out the all of the cinematic references in Barbie. You know, you mentioned one. The one that I would point out, just as far as production design, it's seems obvious but i didn't think of it while watching the movie until it was pointed out to me and then it became really clear um but yeah the wizard of oz is like mm. a, is a, such a perfect example of just like the scale of the production design this actual scale of the sets like like movies that are shot this old school way on gigantic sound stages where the sets are like big and tactile nowadays they don't really you don't really point at the like the sets like you don't you know the, the movie doesn't go out of its way to call attention to them but this one it's like hey look at this gorgeous cinematic world we built and like watch these characters populate it you know and that's and, you, uh, you get lost in them like you don't feel like yeah. you get lost in the last like ant-man or something it's just a giant mess of cgi yeah yeah literally just blue screens everywhere yeah this is uh you know it's just amazing like the, the care that went into it i'd be strongly strongly surprised if this didn't you know walk away with uh um you know host of uh production design awards you know early next year oh yeah for sure and and even a bit of that too and i kind of miss this where you know and we'll, we'll get into the influences later where it's like this is just 
dripping with golden age uh, and studio Hollywood uh, love um, is that like the soundtrack was so integral to the plot. Like I loved even the joke with uh, the two Lizzo songs where like there's the intro one with her first perfect day and Pink. then there's, which was funny in and of itself. And then when they do the second version of Pink and they change the, uh, the lyrics and it's like, and uh, and it's directly interacting with the yeah. story. And yeah, Lizzo breaks the fourth wall and is literally like, are you okay? <laughs> and it's like, it, it's so wonderful. And even with that fourth wall break where it's, it, it's um, golden age Hollywood studio design, but then it's got like this kind of, you know, uh, postmodern sensibility of calling attention to itself like that, where a golden, where a, like, a, yeah, like a thirties movie or like a gone with the wind or something like that wouldn't do that. It would be played straight as like an enhancement to the film where this is sort of a wink and a nod. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's, that's what I, that's really what I'm trying to get at is like, it's so rare to see sets that are this meticulously crafted in these, this like actually physically gigantic um, where the, the goal is not to, you know, uh, make you forget that it's a set. Um, mm -hmm. It's so rare to see that. And again, yeah, that is such a golden age, like, you know, manner of, of approaching production design that it, it's uh, yeah, it's very like, it feels so off kilter in 2023. And I, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, strangely enough, like going back about, you know, 80 some odd years back is a breath of fresh air now in 2023. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of all like, uh, oh, other I mean, just quick high level things that I loved, like somehow in a movie about the girlies, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, oh, you know, he's, he's certainly the standout. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, wow, I'm uh, I, I really do like Ryan Gosling. And uh I think I've usually appreciated him more in his comedic roles where he gets to be, be silly. I've, uh, you know, so I sometimes find him a little bit boring in some of his like, you know, more kind of straight roles. Um, not, not boring, just, just not, and not, you know, necessarily like a standout mm. actor for me, you know, other than a few movies here and there. Like I remember seeing him in the believer back in 2002 or something or when it came out 2003 maybe and uh uh being like really impressed and just being like oh yeah there's new like hotshot young actor playing playing their skinhead role like hmm. like uh russell crowe did at one point and edward norton did at one point um but thinking that he was really really amazing in that and um but you know here and there like you know great performances but i i do think that barbie is his crowning achievement as an actor thus far like <laughs> he is just he is just so fucking good in this movie yeah, i mean i guess a movie's only as good as its villain you know yeah and which you know honestly um to, to this movie's discredit like that that is a little bit of a of a mist for that that the most likable character in the movie is the lead man <laughs> or just, oh man just just the kent in general are cracking me up um yeah it's also just it's just funny it's just straight up incredibly funny the jokes pretty much almost always land um i did well i mean it's a two-hour movie so it's not that long but like didn't feel the runtime at all was yeah. having a great time all the way through the uh the the musical numbers in it oh my uh, yeah, if this that's another Oscar that like I'd be shocked if they had, if they don't get nominated if not win is best original song for I'm just Ken. 
Oh my! Or push if they put. Or, that. <laughs> oh, that's not an original song. That is. Uh, I guess. Yeah, wait, yeah. Are you saying? All right. Have you not heard of Matchbook? Matchbox. No, I have. Game? I know it's like I know it's a it's a cover, but like um, it's Ryan's song now. Okay, dude, his Rob Thomas impression is amazing. Like, <laughs> he's like, I wanna take you for granted. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um. Okay, yeah, we should or, or pink like Lizzo could go away with that oh, original yeah, song. Incredible song. Um, do a song on it. Yeah, I, I would say for like me, for me, I would be I would pick pink to really push for like the Oscar campaign mm. in in this movie is is yeah is pink by by Lizzo. But you know, there's there's a lot that it could go to. And man, this movie is a really really fantastic showcase for just Greta Gerwig as a director and like her introduction to big, big budget filmmaking, like blockbuster filmmaking. Cause man, she, man, she directs the like Broadway style musical numbers and like a pretty exciting, like high speed car chase in this movie with equal verve and like equal precision and equal mm-hmm. quality. Like she, I mean, it, it sounds like she's doing a, a Chronicles of Narnia redo next is, is what i hear but man she could do literally anything now like she'll and, she has the free reign to be, be another christopher nolan where like she yeah. can make whatever the fuck she wants and just because she made it it's a blockbuster mm. that is so amazing that that sort of filmmaking is happening and, and it's like not even just uh, it's already even more difficult for women it's difficult for anyone period nowadays to do that kind of stuff um and and yeah. like you were saying earlier it's like she's doing it's like she's hitting all these high notes with like classic blockbuster filmmaking but this isn't out of place and it fits perfectly uh with the rest of her films like like a ladybird or a little women like it doesn't feel like some qualitative turn about the things that she's concerned about when it comes to storytelling no no and you know it would on, on the surface it, it would be easy to point at this and call it a sellout but it, it's really not i mean we've we've talked already about how like this is such a successful movie both in terms of like celebrating and subverting the ip or criticizing the ip but um it 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 also just like has just her like her thematic undercurrents running through it like the big one that um i've noticed throughout her movies is they're very very concerned with the relationship between mothers and daughters Mm. um or, you know, and even just kind of expand that and just like, uh, you know, women's relationships with each other, um, which even among films made by women, uh, there's still not great representation of female female relationships in, in any movies, really, like to the point where, um, you know, Alison Bechdel in the i think in the 80s made like a comic about it and now you know that problem is commonly referred to by her name Mm -hmm. and uh yeah greta gerwig's movies are just full of uh women being friends with women in healthy ways and in complex ways you know mothers and daughters having complicated but still warm and loving relationships um this movie is no different in any of those fronts um and i uh, i love seeing more of that 
Yeah, and like a a small bit, I guess, to to, to pull the veil back behind what we know about what what's Gerwig and what's the IP. Where I was reading this thing, where she actually fought for that like really short scene um, when you first see Margot Robbie uh, thinking about um, like her being played with by what she presumes at the time is the daughter, and she's sitting there, just kind of feeling human emotions and kind of the the contradictory nature of that for the first time, and you're seeing her get this kind of like aching sadness that she uh, feels. And she looks over and sees this older woman just sitting on the bench, reading her, like reading the papers going about her day. And she looks over there or looks over to her and says that she's beautiful. And the older woman says, I know. And it's just like, I go from just like kind of chilling, watching the movie to like, Oh no, I'm a bowl of pudding. Oh no. Yeah. Um, And it was like, it was it's like, so it was so well set up and so like sensitively crafted. And that was something that uh, Gerwig had to fight to keep in the film. And uh, yeah, uh, now that we're talking about it, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. That is something that would come straight from Greta Gerwig. Yeah. I wonder like who, what was it? Mattel that was like, Oh no, we don't want, we don't want that touching of a moment in our movie. Like who, I guess who it's did like, she this have is to fight? Hide the point. Like, Oh, like this isn't really about, barbie like what are we doing over here let's get let's cut to the chase or something like that or maybe like i mean you know i'm not here to say like uh, oh the evil evil suits of mattel they're probably just like ah this is something that like doesn't have to be here you know wow interesting that was that's one of the, the most striking moments in the movie and it's I such know. a turning point for her where she's starting to see the beauty and imperfection and like up to that point you know she the whole her whole driving uh, her whole driving want is to stop, uh, you know, uh, s- to stop aging, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but that um, yeah. actually reminds me, um, you know, as two straight dudes gushing about uh, Brian Gosling in a Barbie movie, like, oh uh, my god, Margot Robbie as a comedic actor, uh, she knows what she's doing when it comes to doing comedy. Um, she, Mar- Margot Robbie is one of our finest movie stars at this point. Like I, I, today I just looked up like when did the Wolf of Wall Street come out? And um, it was almost exactly 10 years ago now. 10 years came, ago. Wow. It, yeah. It came out in 2013. And um, I, I can't decide if it feels like Margot Robbie just got on the scene or if, you know, I don't remember a time before Margot Robbie because <laughs> she is, had one of the most meteoric rises of any movie star in my life. And even though 10 years is a long time, the the rocket is still like f- full speed to the moon for Margot Robbie. Oh, like, yeah. And, and like, what you're saying is like, um, like Wolf of Wall Street was, you know, when she became a household name or when people started realizing this actress, Margot Robbie, and she could have very easily just been like, the hot ingenue like just sexy thing on screen to stare at and yeah. she i mean she worked against that actually she kind of weaponized that to uh yeah be more like subversive characters deeper characters um uh more layered characters than like oh I'm, and you know obviously a very beautiful person um yeah but to kind of use that to challenge that yeah yeah and she's um man she has she has really cut her teeth on all manner of roles, like like all three of her turns as Harley Quinn. Um, th- those movies, those are performances that have been critically acclaimed, but haven't really been connected to major like box office success. 
Um, same with Babylon and, um, uh, you know, like once upon a time in Hollywood, like, you know, obviously like working with Quentin Tarantino and being in a movie that's, you know, nominated for all these Oscars is a big thing, but that, you know, not, not a huge commercial movie, not a huge commercial success. Barbie is like, finally, she's in a lead role where she is just cleaning up. And I think now similarly to Greta Gerwig, Margot Robbie now is going to get to do whatever the fuck she wants for the rest <laughs> of her life. And uh, you love to see it. Cause yeah, yeah that's great for everyone. She, and she gets to she's, do that. She, she is now just a mega star and it, it's, <laughs> it's really awesome to see it. Like she is definitely now in that absolute a list household name territory that not a lot of, of actors or actresses get. And yeah, I'm really excited to like, sure. she has hit the, the next, echelon like, of people, uh, actresses who my mom knows their name. Actually, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. Very exclusive list to be on. Uh, yeah, I'm so excited to see like the next like five movies that she does and what those <laughs> look like. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I'm trying and like and you know to we'll get to it more in depth uh, a little bit at, at the back end of talking Barbie, but like you know the way that this movie has been pissing off the worst people on the internet that you know. Uh, but in a, and I'm going to celebrate it for the exact same reason where it's like the way representation was used in this was like very uh, uh, sort of adept, I guess is the best word. Like there was a trans Barbie. There's Supreme court, just like Barbies of all different races. There was uh, you see a handicap Barbie for a quick second, like Ken's are of all different races, sizes, things like that. And it's not, it was never brought out as like, Oh, that's the gimmick. We have like the, you know, we have the Barbie from this community for this demographic over here. It was genuinely used to like, you know, fill in the story and to make it richer. Yeah. Um, and, and not a lot of pointing at it really like the demographic stuff, like, you know, like, I don't think they ever made mention of, of race or gender identity in that way or, or anything. I mean, it was just kind of, you know, really enhancing the, the world of Barbie land really. Um, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I want to talk. I, I want to talk about this because, like, man, like Ben Shapiro is a <laughs> fucking idiot, or a grifter, or probably both. Because, man, I like after you know his his reaction went viral, and you watched it, and I was like, oh, I have to watch it so we can talk about it. And but, man, he's been actually like railing against the Barbie movie for like for a long like following it really closely like i didn't realize like how much of a movie guy he is but he really does like a lot of movie content so let, let, um, let, let's make this clear too before diving into to our, our hate watching i actually have a very very firm rule against uh i try to jealously guard what i pay attention to so i try to make a rule about like if there's something that i know i'm not gonna like and that's probably just gonna piss me off and just be absolute doo-doo caca um, I'm not going to pay attention to it, but man, I just couldn't resist no. the Ben yeah. Shapiro Barbie review. Oh man, it's so bad, and he <laughs> is so like he's like so transphobic, like misgendering the actress who plays Doctor Barbie. Um, her name's Harry or Har Harry or Hari uh, Neff, and uh, he like makes such a big deal about it, like he makes his comment like Barbie's voice is lower than mine. It's like, well, yeah, like everyone's voice is lower than Ben Shapiro's. <laughs> like he literally sounds like a angry little boy. <laughs> like he literally sounds like a, like a 10 year old boy. 
yeah and like ben shapiro acting like a little boy um that that was so interesting to me is that like he kept talking about how this was like man-hating or misandrist and and all that stuff for and you and i were just talking about like how much this movie like kind of loves the fellas like it wants what's best for the for everyone in this film um and it, it's just so bizarre to me that you can watch this movie and uh not pick that up which in the question that you're asking like oh is he a grifter is he stupid it's like i'm fully now like you know i've heard sound clips of the guy i've seen like stupid tweets of his but i per- i was never like i never actually engaged with his stuff directly so there was always this like you know very small nugget of like okay clearly the guy's like in bad faith but like i don't know so i can't say for sure because i've never actually i don't want to spend the time engaging with stuff and now that i've actually heard one whole thing of him giving his full arguments like this is a grift this is full grift he knows what he's doing he's not this stupid no one can willfully misinterpret something this that uh that severely um he it makes him a lot of money um and you know what it may if it makes him a ton of money and i i wish he could just admit it to the the drooling idiots that consume that shit uh that um he likes their money and it probably gives him a nice home in i believe nashville and all right i guess yeah is it nashville yeah can't. yeah he moved to nashville unfortunately. Yeah, don't try that in a small town <laughs> Back to how much I love Ryan Gosling, real quick. Uh, I mean, I, 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 it's probably in the script, but it's like his vibe and his the way that he delivers the line is just it won me over so hard. Is when Barbie goes to knock on the door of his Mojo Dojo Casa house, and you kind of see that he's just watching like a horse on a, <laughs> on a big, big screen, and he he comes out and he's like acting all like cool. And she's like at this point trying to fool him into like, you know, kind of buying into, you know, the, the plan that they have to like re overthrow the patriarchy. And uh, she's like saying that she doesn't want to be his girlfriend after all. And he like just like excuses himself and he just runs and goes back into his house and he just yells <laughs> sublime <laughs> and then like comes back out and like acts cool again. And is like, yeah, it reminded me of uh, it. it reminded me of dodgeball and white Goodman. Like where's oh you caught me reading, uh, <laughs> yeah. I I I've tried both times now that I've seen it to uh to try to like visually grab like what it was that he was reading because I'm sure it's a great joke, mm. but I uh, haven't been it's it's gone by me both times. I, I haven't seen which book it is he's oh, reading. But um back to back to little Benny boy, uh, uh enemy of the show, not friend of the show. Um, oh yeah, this is an this is an anti Ben Shapiro podcast. <laughs> um what and i think what once again i don't think he misunderstands i think he's willfully misinterpreting i'm fully sitting on the grifter side um is that um like gerwig uh has obviously uh read her her feminism as we're gonna do my i have a i have a liberal arts degree so i've read some of the the surface level uh feminist texts uh Ladies, I'm sensitive. I'm I'm a liberated man. I don't think it's weak to cry. Okay, ladies. Um, but um, it, it reminds me of like the uh, Virginia Woolf's Room of One's Own, where the idea is not that one. Basically, it's the part that's always stuck with me, where it's like 
she sees men like currently under patriarchy where they are self-confident they are given respect they are they're given the space to explore their identity and grow where she's saying we don't want to take that we want that as well like you like you it doesn't mean you have to lose it it means just expand it out and i think that's ultimately what the film was about in the end because you see like um the Kens where actually, and I thought that was a brilliant move by Gerwig in general, where she basically was using the male gaze to shoot men. Um, so men were being shot at the beginning of the film, like women have been shot for the last, you know, all of cinema. Um, and so he, she was deliberately putting in the map in that position. And then when it flips, it's like, Oh, the only way for, you know, men to be liberated is for them to be the oppressor instead. Where in the end, like, I think the end culminates in this space where it's like, no, there's, there's room for both of us. Like there's no need for one to dominate the other. Like both can explore their own unique identities in like in this shared space. Mm. Question for you though. Have you explained all of this to your girlfriend? Well, oh, see what I was doing actually. So uh, this morning I watched it again with my girlfriend and it was her first time watching it. So naturally the whole time I was just like loudly telling her all the cinematic influences in it. <laughs> what was, all the feminist texts I've read that were clearly being uh, referenced in the films and like why the thematic elements were important to the feminist movement. Uh, she's she so was, lucky. That she she has was you to really impressed. Her. Actually, the people in front of me got up and applauded about halfway through. It was a really nice moment for everyone. Oh, she's so lucky. She's so <laughs> lucky to be able to hear this from you. Um, okay, so I think that the thing that that Shapiro harped on like over and over again in this movie is that like there is some sort of incongruence between how the film was marketed and what the actual content of the movie is. He, he claims that this is a movie that is marketed towards young mothers and their young daughters. That it's a movie for children, yet it's just full of like kind of adult political agenda, um, crass humor and swearing and um, that, that it's irresponsible to market a movie you know, two little girls and then, you know, shove an agenda at them is, is like kind of the, the crux of his argument. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so dumb. Like the movie <laughs> is clearly marketed to like, well, and marketed well to everyone from adult cinephiles, two little girls, two older folks, nostalgic for Barbie, everything in between. And that's clear by the box office take that this is uh, has become very close to a four quadrant movie, if not all the way to a four quadrant movie. And uh, just the, just that the idea that like this had like a, a narrow marketing to little kids to then exploit. So fucking dumb. Listen, Ben, if I had a six year old daughter, I would gladly bring her to this movie and start grooming her to the woke agenda. All right. My daughter was born to crush the patriarchy. <laughs> If I had a son, I would teach him about horses, though, and teach him that's what patriarchy is. It's just horses. That's they're all. Manic, they're just ma man extenders. <laughs> man extenders. That was a great joke. Oh, so good. Um, but yeah, yeah. He he. The extension to to his argument was that because of that incongruence between the marketing and the actual content, that he's predicting a major drop off after opening weekend. And I'm here to say that's hasn't been the case um again is the the exit surveys on this movie a cinema score 
um, you know, made about 150 million over the weekend domestically, about another 100 million internationally for, you know, about 250 million over the weekend. It's as of now, as of Thursday, um, you know, another four days past the weekend, it is now just about doubled that and has passed 500 million globally. And at the end of this weekend, it is pro- it is projected to have passed 700 million globally. Like its second weekend might be like a very small drop off, um, which is unheard of. Unheard of. Ac- yeah. Absolutely insane that it may make another 200 million globally this weekend when it only made about 250 million globally last weekend. That like a 20% drop off would be o- almost unfathomable. Um, yeah, like that's like that's that, just not how movies get rolled out anymore these days. Usually they rely right. on like a few weeks to make a bulk of their front load. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, you know, yeah. back in, well, the kind of fitting where this is kind of looks like a, an old studio film where they used to have those kind of legs where they would stay in theaters for like a year, year and a half. Yeah, yep. And uh, and that's you know kind of by design with the with the home video market and kind of mm-hmm. how that has evolved over the decades, but and you know usually uh, a feature film will kind of lose some screens also from one weekend to the next where maybe it's on thirty five hundred screens weekend one maybe closer to like thirty two hundred weekend two to make room for kind of more new releases and that sort of thing. But Barbie's expanding. <laughs> next weekend she is growing to an, another like 70 to 100 screens and uh man my just poor mission impossible oh man yeah whoever oh, boy whoever committed to letting mission impossible which i'm not a huge mission impossible guy i respect the craft and i'm sure it was an excellent movie to see in theaters um yeah especially uh, that's a big imax movie the week before oppenheimer yeah. like somebody got fired yeah, yeah, and, and again, that that's Chris Nolan's weekend, right? <laughs> like that 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 third weekend in July is just his, has always been his weekend, going back almost twenty years now, and um, he is one of the few filmmakers committed to shooting his movies on IMAX film. So yeah, he's gonna get the IMAX screens, and um, you know, uh, I I did hear that that Tom Cruise and the producers they did like you know kind of make a fuss and they did try to like push back and try to retain some of their screens on the second week and uh, didn't happen for them. But, you know, the, the, the performance of mission impossible part seven, part one was uh, <laughs> uh, a little bit underwhelming, you know, even just last weekend or like a lot underwhelming. And uh, it was, it was a fine movie, not, not the best in the series. Um, but I will say, uh, to, like, if you watch like, red carpet from the premiere of mission impossible like like interviews that tom cruise did he gets asked about barbenheimer a lot and he is so gracious about it oh that's like he thing. is like oh i can't wait to see both of them on opening day it's gonna be like such a great thing to such a great weekend to be a movie fan you know i, I you know, i'm gonna see them both at least once you know on opening day I'm going to make a whole day out of it and have my popcorn. I'm going to try to go with a crowd and try to sneak in the back and actually watch it, you know, in a real movie theater. And it's like, man, like he knew that he was going to get absolutely brutalized <laughs> by those movies. Like, like literally like a huge hit to his, his bank account. And um, he's still just like so gracious just because he fucking loves movies. Problematic um, fave Tom Cruise. 
Ah, uh, love him, love him. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not uh, at all. You know, I don't feel guilty about that. He's, uh, he's a, he's a damn fine movie star and just, you know, big, big proponent of the, you know, of the the, the movie industry in general. Um, con- contrary to to Ben Shapiro, who's just an idiot, and his other argument uh, basically boils down to like him willfully ignoring that. Um, women's rights are are currently being attacked. Like he goes on and on about how like, oh, is this movie really necessary? Like women have a lot of power. Like a woman was allowed to direct this movie. And like, you know, it's basically women the Colin Kaepernick argument where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, the flag and you're, but you're a black guy that plays football. Yeah. And willfully ignoring that women's rights are being actively attacked all over the country right now. That he's participating in. Yeah, like what a fucking piece of shit. You know what? We've given him more time than he deserves. Like other movies that make a point to show that there are petty little men that think that they have a big deal that are just going to be forgotten and swept away by history by people who actually contribute. Actually, before we go into that, do you have anything else? Any other last comments about Barbie? No. Let's move on. Wonderful. 